Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Self-Control Through Torah. I'm David Gottlieb, a historian of Judaism and a teacher of Jewish studies. And I'm Modia Silva, a psychotherapist and author based in Toronto, Canada. And Modia and I, who have studied together for many years, are continuing our way through Torah, Parsha by Parsha, um, learning lessons in Musar, Jewish, the Jewish discipline of ethical self-improvement, with the help of Rabbi Menachem Mendelefen's Cheshbon Hanefesh. Each of the midot, or character traits, in Rabbi Leffen's landmark ethical work uh, are uh, pinned by us to the Torah portion. And we stick with one character trait for four weeks at a time before moving on to the next one. This week, Moji and I are discussing discussing Parshat Vayera in the book of Exodus, and the midah, or character trait, of decisiveness. And Moji, I don't know if there's ever going to be a better matchup between the midah that we're looking at and the parshan that we're reading than Vayera and decisiveness. What do you think? Oh my gosh, what do I think? I'm now I just got curious about why you said that. <laughs> I I don't know. I want to hear why you said that. But I also, as you were just introducing us, I just I just thought of something that the title of our podcast is Self-Control Through Torah. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, okay, so control. So really, what we're really pitching here is the necessity for control. And then I was thinking, well, does that sound limiting? And it could be no. It, it can be controlled through expansion as well. I can I can let myself go and be creative, but I need to do it in a, with containment. Right, and and control can also mean not only containment but direction. Right, mm-hmm. um, we're we're not only reigning in our excesses, but we're determining the path in which we will go. Uh, the reason going back to your question that I feel like this Parsha and the Midav of decisiveness are such a good matchup is that in this Torah portion, uh, we're, we're bidden to consider why Pharaoh hardens his own heart and why sometimes God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And it makes us have to ask questions about free will. If, if God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart, then God is going to cause more suffering among the Israelites. It's simply going to be an inevitable byproduct, at least in the short term, of uh, Pharaoh's increasing and returning determination not to let them go, not to let them go to worship at three days distance, uh, the God who has promised their liberation. And the question then has to be asked, uh, is it Pharaoh's fault? If God's hardening his heart, there's literally nothing that he can do. And so the question is, if for even as a as a person with almost unparalleled autonomy and power like Pharaoh, if this person's free will can be hemmed in, then so can ours. And as I mentioned to you in previous episodes, there's a there's an increasing question today amongst um theoretical scientists about whether there even is such a thing as free will. 
Uh, and that's why the issue of decisiveness is so important, as maybe I'll get into a little bit later in our talk. Maimonides and others like Ibn Ezra believe free will is absolutely indispensable. Um, but some commentators also believe that Pharaoh literally had no choice, but that his choice had already been made. I think the key quote with respect to this is in the Talmud, uh, Makot 10b, which says essentially, in the path that a person chooses to go, he is led. Meaning, once you've gone far down the road of certain kinds of choices, you begin to lose your free will. And Pharaoh's untrammeled power and cruelty mean that past a certain point, he simply, he simply has no choice. We, of course, are not Pharaoh, but we may be subject to the same dangers. And that's why I think this Parsha and this Midah are such a good match. So I think that's a great introduction to the conundrum that we have about free will. And um, I guess we're talking about free will in this episode. Um, Sorry. Sorry, didn't mean to monopolize the conversation. It's just something that was really interesting to me. <laughs> no, it's really interesting because, because as a psychotherapist, um, many of my clients come and believe that they essentially don't have free will. They, In other words, they give up their agency and they become victims and think that the world is doing stuff to them as opposed and, – and they have no recourse. They have no ability to empower themselves to do it for themselves and – and you're right. It switches back and forth, right? Like the first the first two times in this Parsha, Pharaoh is the one who hardens his own heart, or seemingly. Yes. And it's in chapter 9, verse 12, where it says, And God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And that's the first time where it switches. And then the question for me is, is it really a switch like there's definitely something that we have to learn about the apparent switch in who's doing the hardening. But when it comes to free will and the the line from the Talmud that you just quoted, it's like I I think it's the perspective from where we like it's where we stand. Like if I was standing up in God's space, Lahav deal, then I would go, no, no, I'm in control and I'm making every single decision. And then as a human being standing on earth, I think, no, I as a human, I'm making every decision. And maybe the juxtaposition of God hardening versus Pharaoh hardening is really just that constant interplay of whose world are we really living in? Am mm. I living in my ego-driven world or am I living in God's world? So that is a beautiful question and a wonderful observation. And that is a question that I think we have to ask ourselves constantly, right? And every day. But I think the biblical point being made here is that beyond a certain point, you've already answered the question. Your your actions and your the, the pattern of your thoughts that you have established have already answered the question. Abraham Joshua Heschel has a wonderful quote about the verse you just read. He said, those in whom viciousness becomes second nature, those in whom brutality is linked with haughtiness, forfeit their ability, and therefore their right to the gift of free will. Suggesting that um, in many respects, and at many times, but especially on the extremes, our, the, ex the pattern of our decisions determine our subsequent uh, 
fate, right? So that mm-hmm. so that the nature of decisiveness that's being modeled here is a cautionary tale. It looks on one level as though Pharaoh is eventually after some of the plagues happen, he's like, okay, okay, you can go worship. And then he changes his mind. Is he simply being duplicitous or is he being tugged at by contrary uh, inclinations and instincts? One being, who is this God that I should that I should listen to him, which is which is something much along the lines of what he says on the one hand. And the other hand, he says, your God is right, and I and my people are in the wrong. I want to come back to that verse a little bit later to look it up, because uh, the Hebrew is very interesting. Because it's not punctuated, um, uh, it could mean to say, your God is right, and so am I but my people are wrong. In other words, even somebody as powerful as Pharaoh can be hemmed in by by his lack of free will. In other words, by the power of the people he is supposed to be subjugating and ruling over. All of which, Moja, is to say, we must act as though we have untrammeled free will, and we must relate to God as though we are entirely in God's hands. And hold both those paradoxically exactly what do so you think it, well it it makes me think of you know how difficult it is to turn a big ship around right that you're moving uh, as a big cruise ship let's say you're moving in one direction you realize you're off course and you want to switch course it's it's you can't you can't turn on a dime right it, it takes time so even if in your head and even in your body actions you know that i'm moving i'm going to try to change my decision it, the inertia of moving forward can can take its toll. And you see this with your clients, I'm guessing. Oh, I see it with my clients all the time. Uh, yeah. And and they say that. They say, okay, I understand what you're saying. I just can't change. Uh, In other like, words, they've lost their, or think they've lost their free will. Correct. Correct. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that that is what Pharaoh is saying in chapter 9, verse 27. He thereupon Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, Vayomer Elehem Alechem Chatati Hapaam. I stand guilty this time. Vehashem Hatzadik, and God is in the right. Ve'ani Ve'ami Harshaim. So that could be read Chatati Hapam. Hashem HaTzadik ve'ani ve'ami harshaim. In other words, and I and my people are in the wrong. Or it could be read, Chatati HaPa'am, Hashem HaTzadik ve'ani, period, or comma, ve'ami harshaim. In other words, we can't be 100% sure from the text whether Pharaoh is saying <clears throat> is putting himself on the side of his people or opposed to <clears throat> his people. Uh-huh. This is an essential attribute, and I speak from considerable experience here, of indecisiveness, which is that you don't know which side of an equation to put yourself on, number one. And number two, you endlessly game out all the permutations of what could possibly happen. Uh, and, And in this parsha, despite the fact that Pharaoh's magicians can repeat the signs and wonders that Aaron and Moses produce at the behest of God, 
they plow ahead. They continue to do everything that God tells them to do. They're on the path and they know it now. Right. I wish I could be like that. Oh, you do. So I kind of, I don't want to be Pharaoh, but no, no, I, that's not what I meant. That's not what no, I meant. No, no, I meant no. I'm, I'm, go ahead. No, but I want to, I like sitting in the middle. So you and I studied the Tanya, which is the, um, the text written by the first Lubavitcher Rebbe in the late 1700s. And it's very much a book of, of the 53 chapters. The first part of the Tanya is very much about the extremes of Sadiq and Rasha, which is what's said in verse 27, like you just read, the, the, um, the completely righteous and the completely wicked, and then everything in between. And the majority, almost everyone on the planet, is sits in, in the in-between. Mm -hmm. I sort of like being in that tension of not knowing exactly what's quite which direction to go in and living life as an experiment. I so I'm I'm actually pitching the idea now that being completely decisive sort of removes my free will and numbs me a little bit into boredom. I like the struggle of life. What do you think? But, well, I'm not advocating for 100% decisiveness. That's completely unrealistic in my view. But from with my sort of personal inclinations and from my experience, um, there can just be a whole lot of prevarication and a whole lot of gaming out of possibilities and a tremendous amount of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And I think... Uh, Menachem Mendel Leffen warns against this. He says there's the kind of person who equivocates over something endlessly and loses an opportunity. And right. that, you know, there's a balance. The balance is you study the situation, you commit to a course of action, and then you adjust. It's not the end of the world. To me, for me, indecisiveness is a form of egotism. It okay. doesn't matter that much simply act and then adjust accordingly the world okay. will not rise or fall on your actions so that's beautiful that takes me back to last week's pasha to the pasha of shemot the first pasha in the book um where there's a midrash that when when pharaoh the new pharaoh comes to the land or or, the, or there is a new pharaoh in the land and and he's told that these Israelites are growing in number and they're going to become a threat, that he goes to his advisors. He goes to three advisors, according to the Midrash, and says, I don't know, what should I do? And the Midrash says that the first advisor was Bilam. And Bilam is like, get rid of them, man, destroy them. right? And then the second advisor was Yitro, was Jethro, who became the father-in-law of Moses. And Yitro says, no, no, they're peaceful people. Just leave them alone. And then the third advisor was Job. And Job said nothing. He just sat there pontificating like you just said. And then you look at the outcome, what happened in those three people's lives, right? Bilam got killed in war. Yitro becomes a hero. And Job, well, suffers tremendously because mm -hmm. he failed to act is the is the teaching from the midrash wow so wow. i i agree with you that decisiveness has to turn into action i i'm i'm just not so sold that once i've made that decision to act that 
I then have to go, that's the only thing I could have done. No, I agree with that. I right. agree with that. And I think that's a, a wonderfully um, astute observation. Um, you know, this is the Parsha 2 uh, in chapter 6, verse 9, uh, where the uh, where um, Moses relays the message of God to the Israelites but it says, "Vayidaber Moshe Ken al bnei Yisrael velo shamu al Moshe mikotzer ruach ime avda kasha avoda kasha." So, "kotzer ruach" is a key phrase that lots of commentators um, dwell on. Uh, it's often translated as. Uh, their spirits crushed by cruel bondage. It can literally mean a kind of shortness of breath, right? It suggests a lack of free will. And some commentators focus on the fact that one can become accustomed to, to, be, to enslavement. And that after a while, it hems in one's ability to respond. So the challenge for us is not only a breath-related capacity to expand fully into each moment, um, but it's also to uh, not become accustomed to the various ways that we're enslaved. I wonder what you think about that. Oh, no, I I, I love that. Whenever I see Kotzer Ruach, I always, th because I'm a somatic therapist, I always mm -hmm. think my mm -hmm. own shortness of breath and what, when people come to me and they have shortness of breath, what, what, um, what the context is around that. What, Can you what's say that? a little something about what somatic therapy is for our listeners? Sure. What that discipline means? Yeah, well, I think all therapies are the same to start, to start with. I, th I think... Not a great selling point for your services, I just want to say, <laughs> but carry on. <laughs> well, this is where I, what I've come down to over the years is that we trip up in life by having either fixed thinking or cyclical thinking. And I think every therapy in its own way tries to break that pattern, tries to either break you out of your fixedness or break you out of the cyclical thinking, which is also fixed. And, you know, so cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, does it by having you rip out the negative thought process and try and replace it with a positive thought process. That's my, I'm not a CBT guy. But that's what no, I no. think it does. Okay. Okay. Right. Um, somatic experiencing does the same thing, but it does it through the somatics. It does it through the body. Mm. So it doesn't say let's not think, let's not use your thought or your brain, but it says let's start in the body and see what information your nervous system, your skin, your fascia, your bones, like see what information they want to pass up to the brain so that ultimately you can replace. The thinking, or or you know, create a, a new neural pathway that's more healthy. That's amazing. Yeah. So I just when, love so, that. so a shortness of breath usually includes also a tight diaphragm or like a tight abdomen, um, because you can't breathe fully down into your into your stomach, right? And then and then the question is, what else is tight? What else is happening in the body? And I just, and, and it, then it becomes an experiment. It's like, oh, if this is tight, is there a place that isn't so tight? Or if this is tight, can you stay with the tightness? And sometimes can you turn the dial up 10% and see what happens? It's all 
in in the language that we're using in this episode right now, I think it's all in keeping with helping people make decisions, like creating choice. Because, wow. because with awareness of your internal processes, you then have greater choice. And greater choice brings freedom, which really is the theme of the whole book of Exodus. That's amazing. It's such a great insight. And I think you've pinpointed something that is so crucial to Judaism, broadly speaking, and to the Midah of decisiveness. And that is the the dichotomy, the dialectical tension between fixed and cyclical thinking. Judaism operates on the tension between fixity and cycles. And the ability to walk the appropriate line of decisiveness requires that we have certain fixed principles and disciplines, but that we also realize that things go in cycles, right? Our whole life is a sine wave. Our bodily, our bodily processes move in cycles, not in straight lines. Mm -hmm. um, the whole way of the world is cyclical, and we want it to be fixed because the contingency and the vulnerability that we feel uh, are so frightening. But if we listen to the cyclical patterns of the body and use our minds as tools to better understand that, our decisiveness will come from a deeper place, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I think so, because I think this, this yearning to be fixed is a natural state for the, for our human condition. Like from a, from a trauma, through a trauma lens, we want certainty and certainty. It means fixed because then my amygdala network can calm down. Everything can calm down and I can just live a peaceful life. So I, 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 I do think that. And then, and then I think about Moses in the last um, Parsha that we read that he sees someone of his people being killed and then he kills someone. And I don't know if he was traumatized by that event, but in this Parsha, he seems to be um, hesitant in doing things. And I don't yes. just because he can't speak clearly and therefore Aaron's going to have to be the leader. I, I wonder if he's still carrying a trauma. Um, there's a place, and I don't know if I can find it so quickly. Oh, yeah. Um, chapter 9, verse 22. Let me quickly go there. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, okay. Chapter 9, verse 22. And God said to Moses, stretch forth your hand toward the heaven that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt upon the people and upon the beast and upon every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And then verse 23 says, and Moses stretched out his rod toward the heaven. It's like, and nothing happens. Like, I mean, he's not, uh, he's not punished or, or reprimanded for that at all. God says, hold out, like reach out your hand. Moses reaches out his staff, his rod. And it's like, did he not hear properly? Like, what's going on? Is there a level of confusion? Is he, he maybe, is he Kotzer Ruach? Is he like suffering from shortness of breath? Like, and then we see, like, we'll see later in the Torah, right? That he really messes up when it comes to using his stick, his rod. Yes, I was just thinking about that. Yeah. So, 
so I don't know what to make of that because I know we're talking about decisiveness, but I was reading that this week and it just really bothered me. Not bothered me that he switched from hold, stretching out his hand and instead used his rod, but that there's no commentary about it that I found that ex that talks about why he switched from what God told him to do. It's interesting that you focus on that. And I think one answer that I have is that it is in this parsha that God essentially switches from the name Elohim to the name Adonai. Um, uh, and Adonai being yud -Hey and vav -Hey. yud -Hey, vav -Hey, and and in later rabbinic thought, coming to represent the attribute of mercy mm -hmm. rather than divine justice. Uh, commentators seem to suggest that uh, God understands Moses's and more broadly human fallibility and knows that in order to guide people into the recognition, recognition of God's uh, universal power and redemptive possibilities, God is going to have to act from a place of mercy primarily rather than judgment. And I think this extends for a certain amount of time toward the Israelites and toward Moses particularly, so that if Moses doesn't follow uh, commands to the letter, God acts mercifully. And we'll get later to the partiote where um, God's finally had enough and says to Moses, for reasons that commentators puzzle over, that's it, you're not going to see the promised land. And we don't really, it, it, it's hard, uh, on the surface, one can pin down what Moses did to deserve that fate. It could be that Moses had that fate in store for him all along. Uh, but certainly, uh, and it could be that a certain number of minor transgressions accumulate until God says, in order for this process to succeed, you can't enter the promised land. Now, this is an important point that you brought up, and I think we have to recognize that the whole pattern of Jewish text is about the journey. We spend much less time on destinations than we do on journeys. Torah is about the journey. Torah ends on the edge of the destination. Similarly, the Haggadah is about the journey toward liberation. It's not about liberation itself. And even in the midst of celebrating liberation in the Haggadah, we recognize that liberation is not complete. In other words, there's more for us to do. Mm Hashanah -hmm. Haba'abirushalayim means, on one level, keep working. Right. It is not incumbent upon you to complete the task, neither are you free to desist from it. There's always more to do. And in order to do that more, you have to be decisive. You have to be decisive and recognize that life is a sine wave, not a fixed wave. Amen, brother. So I, I like that because if we jump back to Job, chapter 14, verse 5, it says, Im sim yamav that his days are fixed. So we have the word harutzim, because this is our parsha. I mean, sorry, this is our character trait that we're working with, is hatsirut, right? Harutzut, right? mm -hmm. sorry. Harutzut. Sorry, Um is decisiveness. And so I think it is saying Job has a path to follow. He has a life to live. And there's a lot of struggles that he has, 
and his days are determined. His days are fixed. So you're right. It's like we're only here for 120 years and a day so that we shouldn't die suddenly and surprise everyone. Um, but but what's in between that from zero to 120 has to be a sine wave. But yet we still have to make decisions, right? Yeah. And what's the impact on someone who is indecisive? Say more about that. What do you mean? Well, you know, someone who cannot make a decision. So Pharaoh, like it's this is the we, this is the Persia. Pharaoh keeps making a decision, then they're going back on it and making a decision and going back on it. And and we could say back to free will. Well, God already decided way in advance that there were going to be ten plagues and all this punishment. But but Pharaoh could have stopped it. He could have let the people just go and pray in the desert for three days, mm -hmm. and then he decides to do otherwise. Yes, you can go. No, you can't go. Yes, you can go. No, you can't go. Like, I just know from my kids, I have teenagers in the house, and one of them in particular changes their mind constantly. And I can feel the impact on me of that indecisiveness. It's, it's just not pleasant. And um, I'm going with this, except for share, sharing my own personal grief. So it's interesting. Me, I would love to hear, as a result of our thinking about this and diving into this midah of Haritsut, how it's going to affect how you approach the indecisiveness of your teenager, which is really just the the agonies of a person, you know, being shoved by biological processes in the passage of time into adulthood, strives to deal with all the choices that lie before them. Right. Right. It's a beautiful question because every time we work on Amida, I find, including this one, we talk about ourselves. What is the, like, how do we manage ourselves with that particular character trait? And now what you're asking is, and how do we manage ourselves when someone else is exhibiting the character trait? Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. I have uh, just a couple more things. I'm uh, looking, as I always do, at Scheihel's commentary, The Heart of Torah, um, uh, his wonderful two-volume collection of uh, commentary on the Parshiot. And he says, um, <clears throat> uh, Maimonides embraced a naturalistic metaphysics that severely restricted or even eliminated instances of direct divine uh, intervention in the universe. Indeed, Maimonides reduced prophetic locutions of the form God does X to statements of the form within the natural order ordained by God, X occurs. So then we have to turn our attention back to Pharaoh, and um, uh, and Shai Held, Rabbi Held says, moreover, Maimonides insists in the Guide of the Perplexed that God never interferes with human freedom and that divine providence never takes the form of direct divine intervention to punish the wicked. So what does Maimonides mean here with respect to Pharaoh? This is what he means. There comes a point when a person has become so totally entrenched in bad behavior that he simply loses the ability to choose any other path. Crucially, the person remains responsible for his actions even after he's lost his freedom because his consistently bad choices are what led him to his current state. And later on, Rabbi Held quotes Nahum Sarna, the biblical scholar, who says uh, that the fact that the Torah describes Pharaoh's first five refusals, 
in other words, the first five hardenings of his heart, as self-willed, and thereafter speaks of them as divinely willed, is really just the biblical way of asserting that the king's intransigence has by then become habitual and irreversible. His character has become his destiny. He is deprived of the possibility of relenting and is irresistibly impelled to his self-wrought destruction. Moji, here's the key. If we stick to a single pattern of life, to a single form of decision-making and rationalization of our decisions, then our character becomes our destiny, right? Eventually, I think this may be true for everybody, but in the case of extreme personalities, character we can see becoming destiny. I think that's beautifully said, and I would maybe, I agree with that, and I would add it's maybe not just our character, but our belief system, like everything about us becomes our destiny. Um, as you were reading that, it made me think about, you know, the people who come to me with addictions. Mm, yes. And, and then and maybe this lead maybe this will lead into um some homework for us this week but not to become you know hooked into anything <laughs> but but the people with addictions have real struggles because they come and they say i recognize that i have an addiction and i want to stop and it's back to the big cruise ship that you just can't turn around on a dime it's like, okay, what is one small thing that you can do today that would help you start to make the change that you want to make? And I know 12-step programs like AA and you know, Al-Anon and all of those like do a wonderful job of that because they're behavioral, uh, they're behaviorally focused. So they're so they're um recognizing I what I hear you saying is that they're recognizing the impingement upon free will forced by the addiction. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh -huh. So maybe our homework, I'm just, this is, I'm just trying to craft this now. So help me. But uh -huh. maybe the homework is once a day to look for when we have to make a decision and see if it becomes problematic. If we see ourselves ruminating too long to slow down, stop and say, what other data do I need to make that decision? and then get the data and then make the decision. Alternatively, if you make the decision really quickly to then stop and reflect on, did I do that too quickly? Did I have enough data to make that decision? Or would it so have- So in other words, gather the data to make a decision, reflect upon the process, and and sort of do a cheshbon of the process itself. Yes, and, and a cheshbon being an accounting, like an evaluation. Yeah. yeah. Post, uh, uh, post. I'm just going to skirt this assignment by not making any decisions this week. Is that okay? <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> that was a decision. I think I better reflect on the process under which that decision was made. No, I like your assignment, and I think we should do it, and I think it needs both parts, both conscious tracking of the process of gathering data and making a decision, and then and then doing a cheshbon or accounting about, you know, did I gather the right data? Did I take the appropriate amount of time? And how's the decision playing out? How's that working for you? Mm -hmm. And because of what you said just a few minutes ago, not just how is it working for you, but how's it working for the people around you as well? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Totally agree. Well, this has been, I've learned an awful lot from Me you too. as I always do. Me too. And uh, we're in the midst of 
an incredibly intense and instructive run of Partiote. Uh, we're halfway through. We've done two of the four episodes we're going to do on decisiveness, so there's more to learn. Uh, I want to thank our listeners for listening to another episode of Self-Control Through Torah. It's wonderful to be on this journey with you. Please tell your friends about the podcast. Uh, I'm David Gottlieb. And I'm Modia Silva, and we'll see you next week. Bye.